So glad you are, and uh, glad that you guys are here. Uh, today, we have a special Sunday. Uh, we are joined by Vince Miller. It was a few years back that uh, some of the guys in our men's ministry decided to go through this book called to Act Five Uncomplicated Disciplines excuse me, for, for Men, uh, written by Vince Miller. Vince is a author and a speaker to men around the world on topics that include manhood, masculinity, fatherhood, mentorship, leadership, marriage. He has authored 19 different books for men and has hosted on major video platforms like Right Now Media, a platform that our AFLC is working with right now, and Faith Life TV. He's host of a weekly podcast and writes weekly articles. Uh, we've been really blessed by that. Uh, some of the guys in the men's ministry decided to continue with this book and look at different scriptures over this last couple of years and, and, and follow some of the podcasts. And we've been really blessed, Vince, by some of the stuff that you've put out. And we're just glad to host you here. Uh, in 29 years of ministry, uh, you have uh, served the church, the local church, and now uh, over these last number of years, uh, founder of Resolute, a men's ministry platform that provides Bible studies and, and other resources aimed at building better men. Uh, you can find more info at beresolute.org. Would you welcome with me Vince Miller? Thank you. Well, good morning. Uh, good to be here. Thank you, Pastor Nick, and all the guys that have faithfully watched some of the teachings that I've tried to put out for men. Um, you know, sometimes you wonder if you're uh, making an impact, but uh, God does surprising things. Uh, for example, when I, I started this ministry about 10 years ago, one of the things that I was doing at the time was I was writing a little devotional that I sent out to my family, and uh, I had three kind of young teens at the time, my kids are older now, but at the time there were three young teens, and I was trying to figure out a way as a father that I could actually have an impact in their life. So I decided one day and told my wife that I had this genius plan that I was going to use the phone to reach my kids, and so I was going to write them a little daily devotional. And so it was a little bit of an experiment, because sometimes as a father you feel like a failure. A lot of the times you feel like a failure. Anyway, I, I attempted this thing, and I thought it was a great idea because they got their phones with them all the time. And so, you know, day one, I start writing this Devo and put it together, send it to them. Day two, day three, day four, it continues for 30 days. And I hear not a single peep from anybody in my family, including my wife, by the way, who was also on the group text, Okay. And it's just like going and going and going, and I, I, but you know, each day goes by where I don't hear anything, not even a, like one of these emojis, you know, or a smiley face, or that was a good one, Dad, you know, nothing. And on day 31, I decided not, not to send another one, and then my daughter pipes in. She was the oldest of the three kids, so she pipes in, and she says, Dad, where's my devotional? It's her little text. And I text back to her kind of angrily and in a sarcastic tone, which she didn't pick up on. Oh, I didn't know you read it, honey. And uh, she goes, Dad, I read them every day. In fact, I send them to my friends. And there's one particular friend that I'm sending it to right now who needs to hear your devotional today. Could you please send me that? No kidding, I was really taken back by that. Fifteen minutes later, I got a text from my middle child who said, yeah, Dad, where's my Devo? And I think he was just saying it, you know, but I said, I'll send it to you right away. And no kidding, eventually there was a few dads that heard that I sent out these Devos. And they said, why don't you just send them out to everybody? Why don't you send them out to me too? And then they started sharing them. And then today, literally, Every day, millions of men read those around the world, which is one of the little tools that started at Resolute that kind of caught fire and that God used somehow. So if you're a parent in the room, know that you may not feel the impact right away of what God is doing through you, but it might show up one day and it might make an eternal difference in people's lives. And every day I write a little Devo 
that's done in video, audio, and written format that men read around the world. How cool is that? How cool is what God does, right? Yeah. Praise him for using futile objects like us, right? So he can use anybody if he can use me. That's what I want you to know. But we're going to be looking at a little bit of uh, the context of parenting today. And uh, if you're a child, this is for you. If you're not yet married, this is for you. If you're currently a parent, you better pay attention because this is really for you. And if you're a grandparent or a great-grandparent, you need to listen into this because I, I think it's critical because I know that there's been many times in my life where I questioned whether or not I was going to be a very good dad or that I was a very good father. I was raised in a home with a, an atheistic father and an agnostic mother. Just think about that just for a moment. My life was a little bit different. In fact, I remember as a child mentioning God's name in the house, and my father chastised me for mentioning God's name in the house. Because you couldn't even use his name in the house, not even as a curse word, for the opposite reason that many of us would say it would be inappropriate to do that. It's going to just a little bit of a mind bender, but you know, we didn't have certain things in our house as a child, certain things didn't happen. Uh, my bio dad left my mom when I was young. My mom got remarried again, divorced again, and then about by the age of 15 or so, my mom abdicated raising me. At that moment, my grandfather, my mom's dad, stepped into my life, and he stepped in, and I moved into his home. And life in his home was very, very different than my mom and dad's home because he was a believer in Jesus Christ. And there I discovered all kinds of crazy things that he believed and how he lived life that changed me forever. I lived with him for five years before he died, but those five years were some of the most impactful years and left me learning about a guy named Jesus Christ. I'll never forget one conversation I had with my grandfather in his old 58 Chevy pickup. I remember sitting by his side one day while the truck was parked. He stopped the car, he turned to me, and he had a conversation that went 30 minutes, 30 seconds long, and it changed me forever. It went like this. He said, son, I know that your mom and dad say that God is not real. Their evidence for that is that Christians are hypocrites and the church is full of broken people. And he says, I need you to know something. They're right. The church is full of hypocrites, and yeah, there are broken people, and I'm one of those guys. But you need to know this. My faith is not in the church or in broken people. It is in a man who was broken for me, and it's in him that I place my faith, and his name is Jesus. And that one little 30-second conversation turned my entire world right side up for the very first time. I started to look at this man named Jesus that my grandfather incessantly talked about and taught me about, and eventually I made a decision for Jesus Christ that altered the course and the pattern of my life forever. Like I said, at the age of 20, he died of cancer. He got cancer in his spine and died very quickly. But at his bedside, I, I made a commitment. I made a commitment for the rest of my life to do for other men what my grandfather had done for me and that was disciple me, mentor me, guide me in the way of faith, and that's what I've been doing ever since that day he died. Ever since that day. Speaking the good news to men that need to know his name, Jesus' name, around planet Earth. Yet there's been a couple of moments in my life where I really wondered if I was going to turn out okay. Uh, the mo there was a couple of moments that just changed me forever where I was really concerned about who I was as a man. One of those moments was the moment I got married. I wasn't sure how to do this thing called marriage. The next moment was the moment of our first child when she was born. Her name is Faith. I remember her coming out of the womb on the day of her birthday thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I got to keep someone else alive? And really unsure of how to do it because I never really had a good example as a child of what that looked like. 
And the third most terrifying moment of my entire life was the moment that my daughter graduated high school and went off to college. The next most terrifying was the day she got married. That was especially terrifying, and each one of these terrifying moments I know shaped me as a man, as a husband, as a father, and as a leader. And over those years, I've tried to find and navigate my way fatherless and trying to understand what it means to be a Christian man leading a Christian home, raising Christian kids in hopes that maybe I can have an impact for a generation that wasn't had on me by my bio family. And yet I really believe that in the room there are children and parents and grandparents that think about this incessantly as well. That we think about what this is going to look like in a world that's constantly shifting and changing. As the, we feel the ebb and flow of this world and the changing seasons and tides, how do we do it? And I always thought along the way that there would be some advice that I would get and maybe a book I'd pick up or a video on YouTube that would show me how to do something as a parent that would really help me. I came to discover in my learnings and readings of God's Word that there was a single text that will help you more than any other. Inside of it are simply two components that I believe empower us to understand what it means to be a parent in the times that we live. And I'm going to read this text for you today. It's a very familiar text. It's an old text, an ancient text. It is the Word of God Himself. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and following. God says this. He says, Hear! Shema! Pay attention! Give me your undivided attention. Hear, O Israel! The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, deep inside of you. They shall weigh on you. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You know, we tend to pass over this scripture all the time, but this is like incredible ancient wisdom. It's God's advice to kids, to moms and dads, to grandparents and great-grandparents. It's the guiding tool for everything we do in life. And in a few texts here, God gives us all the advice we would ever need for understanding how to build a biblical home that impacts the world forever. Hear, O Israel, he says. And then he gives us a couple of things. Two components for you parents in the room today. Two components that I believe will change you forever. Component number one is this. You must find your identity and your priority in God. Find your identity and priority in God. You know, I think we pass over this great commandment all the time. We, we, we say it ritualistically, but we don't allow the words to really wash over us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love Him intimately, intimately with everything that you are as He is the one who imparts to you your identity. The very speaking, the speaking of His voice initiates creation. When God speaks, things happen. We listen. We hear. But we hear in such a way, not just to listen, but allow those words to reverberate 
on our mind, on our heart, and on our soul so deep that they affect the person that we are. Do you hear that here? That's what God is saying here. He's saying, when I speak, listen to me, but listen in such a way that when you hear my vocal cords, you feel them in the innermost part of your being. They affect you not just in what you're hearing for the sake of information. They affect how you think, how you feel, how you behave, because they form you. Because note this, from God's voice, He creates. He creates things. Light, darkness, land, water, the divide between the two, animals, life, plant life living creatures, and finally, His finest creation, humankind, mankind, man, and looked back at it and said, this is very, very good. Because God creates when He speaks. Now, when man speaks, he may have some creative power, but only power within God's design. Therefore, God turned to man and said, now name the creatures of the earth, by which I think God was mildly entertained by that. I actually believe he was completely entertained. Giraffe. Okay, we'll run with it, because I said you could. But note, man may be able to define things within creation, but his voice doesn't create. It doesn't impart something from nothing. God says, if you want to create something from nothing, get your own dirt. But God's words, they do something, right? Well, one of the things that they do is they form our identity. This is clear from the Psalms, that God knit you together before you were a thought in your mother's womb, he was thinking about you and speaking you into existence. That's you. You. And he's forming you. Yet we have a world that is shouting to us about our identity all the time, don't we? It's communicating to us about who we are. And as it's communicating to us about who we are, sometimes we listen to the definition of what those other voices are saying. But those voices aren't always God's voice. They're the voice of others. I tell men this all the time. I say there are five voices that all men hear. Five voices that all men hear. Well, actually, there's four that they hear most, but, but there's five of them. For, the first voice is this, the, the voice of the man that you think that you are. And I want you to know, women, that most men are legends in their own mind. They are. They think they tell the best jokes ever but they're just dad jokes in actuality. They think they're the best inventors, the best leaders, the most masculine, coolest guys that, you ever th that they ever think that they are, because in their mind, that's what they think about themselves on most days. All it takes is a little pat on the back, a little that a boy, a, you crushed it, good job, and all of a sudden, there's this animal instinct that comes out where they are legendary. For just a moment in time, right? There's that voice that men hear. And many men hear this voice and follow this voice to the nth degree. That's why we have narcissists. That's why we have oppressive leaders. That's why we have control freaks and micromanagers. That's why we have men who, to some degree, expose the worst part of humanity sometimes and the things that they do is because they are legends in their own mind we have way too many elon musks of the world and not enough humble truly humble men the second voice that i think many men hear is the voice of what others say this also comes in in many different forms sometimes it comes in the form of your boss that drives you, or your wife that nudges you, or a kid that makes you feel a certain way, and then you respond to them. The voice of what other people say is very powerful to some men. It drives their behavior, therefore they perform a lot. They put on a show to please other people, 
Jesus talked about this in religious leaders in the New Testament all the time. Pharisees, hypocrites, that put on a show for other people to please them, but never God. And in a strange form or way, they're pleasing other people to kind of bring pleasure to themselves, which is a backwards way to compliment themselves. And it makes them a slave to other people. The third voice is this. It's the voice of the man that you think that other people think that you are. It's a very perverted voice. If you really think about it just for a second, the voice of the man that I think that other people think that I am. And the echoes of this voice is the voice that you hear when you're laying in the bed late at night, kind of thinking about maybe the tragic events of the day, wondering what that person thought of you because of how you behaved in a certain situation. But this very devious, almost bipolar voice drives many, many men in quiet desperation. The fourth voice is a very, very powerful voice, and it's the voice of the man that you were. It's the voice of the past. And for many men, they have committed grievous sins with grievous pain that had heinous results on other people's lives. And because of that, it keeps echoing back and back and back. The man that they were is reminded to them daily. Sometimes it's used in the voice of guilt and shame by other people who remind them of what they did way back here. Therefore, this continues to drive their pattern where they never find new life and they feel trapped by the voice of the past and they can't get away from it. There are some men whose sin has been so perpetual that this voice continues to drive them even today. And then there's the fifth voice, the most important voice, the one that I believe that men should listen to. It's the voice of God and what he says you are. Which, by the way, you can find in Ephesians 1. It's all over Ephesians 1. Loved full of grace and mercy, adopted as a child to receive an inheritance from God that never ends. And then just Paul keeps kind of throwing it out there, all these blessings, all these voices that come from God about who we are in Him. And then men discover if they can ever really listen to the, this voice, the voice of the God and what he, of God, and what he has called me to be, if they can really tune into the, that voice, they're going to realize throughout the day, they, they hear these other voices all the time. They're always tempting them. The voice of the man that I think that I am. The voice of the man that others say that I am. The voice of the man that I think that other people say that I am. The voice of the past. They're always echoing in the chambers of their mind. And that we as men of God in this room, if we are, we struggle and strain to listen to that voice on a regular basis, which is why God says to us here, find your identity and priority in me and nothing else. Because there's so many temptations from this world to believe, to believe, really essentially in yourself that you can save yourself from the situation that you're in in life when no one else can save you but God and his voice and his identity. This is our struggle. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman sitting in this room, young or old. You're going to struggle with this issue for your entire life. You're going to struggle with it when you lose your job. You're going to struggle with it when you face devastation in your family's life. You're going to struggle it when you watch your grandfather die or your father die or your friend die. You're going to, watch, you're going to struggle with it when you face off with cancer or, or, or COVID. Or you're going to struggle, it, struggle with it when you face that heinous sin that you're keeping from everybody else that no one else knows about. And you come face to face with it and you're challenged with it because it's become public. And now you've got to look into it and look into the face of God and seek to search for finding your identity in God himself. It's a never-ending battle until the day that our soul is fully redeemed and we come face to face with Jesus himself. Seeing not only him for who he truly is, but us for who we truly are. This challenge is never ever going to end so we're going to always have to come back to god as the identity and priority for our lives that's component number one component number two is this you have to start turning 
those divine daily moments as parents into teachable moments. Because get this, every moment is a teachable moment. Every moment is a teachable moment. That's what the writer here says. That's what God says. As you sit, as you lie down, as you get up, as you walk by the road, our job is to teach. It's not the government's job to teach. It's not a teacher's job in an educational system to teach, even though they are given that title. The primary responsibility goes to the parent to teach based in the one book that does the teaching, God. He is the first teacher. He is the designer. He knows how best to live life. It would be crazy to go to anybody else but our designer for understanding how we're to live out that design. And God is the first designer. I should never go to my methodology or my ideas or my philosophy or my concepts or even a popular book or a YouTube video to find out how to best live this life. If I want to know how to best live this life, I go to the Creator who designed me and I follow His directions because He understands best. And then I pass that on to the next generation. One little lesson at a time, after another, after another, after another, after another, and I want you to know it's exhausting. It's 100% exhausting as a parent. If you're a child tired of asking your parents for advice because they give you too much advice, yeah, I've been on that side of the argument. I also understand that the more that I teach and the more consistent I am with that teaching, the greater of an impact it could potentially have. And that I'm the voice that I want my kids to hear more than any other. And you know what? I don't always do it right. But occasionally, I get it right. And you too will occasionally get it right. Because I promise you, everything that comes out of your mouth is not perfect, but you've got to open your mouth and you've got to teach. You know, I used to think it was about going to the right book or getting the right principle or having the right concept or having the right methodology as a parent, but it's not. It has nothing to do with it. All it has to do with is I've got to find my identity and purpose in God all the time, and then I just bring that to bear in a very transparent way with my family. That's it. I got three kids. One is 23 and married, one is 21, and one is 19. So the 19-year-old is about to graduate high school, hopefully, this week. The first two were easy to raise. Cakewalk. Like, easy. They were compliant, they listened, they did well. Then I have my third child. His name's Riley, and he is exactly that. He is a Riley kid. From the age he was a, uh, uh, he understood that he was an adult or old enough to go to bat with me as a father and my wife as a mother. He did it. So from age 13, he was the most testing kid on the face of this planet. Get this, he tests us on everything. It was so bad by the time that we turned 15, we decided to go in and go to one of the best uh, psychiatrists in the country, kind of get him tested, try to understand how this kid thinks. Because I want you to know, basically all the way through junior high and high school, he's essentially barely passed every class. It's unbelievable, like how much we've had to help this kid. We're in the last couple of weeks of school, and I'm already feeling the weight fall off of me and my wife right now. How many times that we've had to help him with something or push him harder or to get him to sit down and read or to do his homework or to remain faithful to these things. And he's tested me as a, as a Christian too. He's pushed hard and he's belligerent. He's made some mistakes. I wish I could tell you he was a perfect kid, but he's not. He's been brought home by police officers five times. Five times. Not once has he gotten a ticket, which is remarkable. Remarkable. Five times he's been brought home by a cop. And every one of them are like patient with us. I don't understand why. But this kid tests every limit. Every single, if there's a limit, he's on this side of the line of that limit. No kidding. We go in and we have this test when he's 15. And 
is supposed to be the best psychologist in the state of Minnesota. We set her down. She's done this thing for 30 years. 30 years she's been uh, a psychiatrist with kids just like my son. She's in there. Riley's throwing a fit about going into this meeting. He doesn't want to go. He's resisting it. But somehow she woos him into this room. They have this private conversation. About an hour into it, she comes barreling out of the room. Comes barreling out of the room. You're not going to believe this. And she's trying to be elated in front of him. You're not going to believe this. Your son turned pages on an IQ test that I've never seen in my entire life. For those of you who are doctors in the room and kind of understand this, an IQ test works this way. You turn a page, and then when they finally get one wrong, you don't turn the next page. Well, she turned two dozen pages she's never seen, ever on an IQ test. Two dozen. She'd never seen him in 30 years of doing this with kids. Guess he's got an IQ of like above 170. A kid who can't pass a class, by the way, right? A kid who is also dyslexic, we find out in that meeting. Extremely dyslexic, so he has a really hard time reading. No kidding, high IQ, comes out, he's kind of smirking, you know, that whole thing. He... But here's the thing about Riley. I may be going into too much detail today, Pastor, but anyway, you don't know anything about <laughs> Riley is incredible with people. He happens to be a pretty good-looking kid. He's very wooful, and he's extremely athletic. In fact, I'm not even going to talk about it, but he's number one in the state in an athletic category right now in high school sports. But he's also really, really masterful with people. He is so good. He can convince them of anything. In fact, if he stood in this room, he could convince you of anything today. I don't care how old you are. He is so masterful with adults. It's amazing. In fact, some of his friends call him the master manipulator. Here's what he did yesterday. Yesterday before the game, he walks out and tells his coach and teammates this. He says, I want to apologize to you guys. He says, I want to apologize because I haven't pushed you hard enough. I'm like, are you joking me right now? It that changes us, that changes us. If we can understand these two principles here, find your identity and priority in God, turn divine moments into teachable moments and just keep repeating the process, this is what it means to be a Christian, really. It's just as much about being a Christian as it is about being a parent, as a leader, as a pastor, as a friend. This is what it looks like. little story for you. Five years ago, my middle child, his name is Grant, got his driver's permit, his driver's permit. Now, a permit means this, that you can drive with a responsible adult in the car, right? I don't know why you have to say that to them, but you do. It's a piece of paper that says you can have your mom or dad or some other responsible adult older than the age of 21 in the car with you, therefore you can drive. That's it. Well, he got his driver's permit like in the middle of the week, and then it was a Friday night, my son had a couple of friends over the house, and he's over the house with these couple of friends. They spend the night. 
we wake up on Saturday morning, and on Saturday morning, we're supposed to take a trip up north to Duluth. And uh, we are kind of getting ready in the morning. We're trying to wake Grant up and his two friends, kick him out of the house. Grant persists with us. My middle child persists with us and says, we're just tired. Can I just stay back for this trip? Well, we were supposed to take a trip, our family of five, with my daughter's boyfriend, who is now her husband at the time. We're going to have like a meeting of the families for the first time, right? It's kind of, you're trying to put on a show, right? That's what you're kind of trying to do. This family's meeting that family. We're going to go together. We're going to do some Christmas shopping up in Duluth. It's supposed to be fun. We're going to get to know each other. Well, no kidding. Grant doesn't want to come. So we said, fine, stay back with your couple of friends. So my family and this other family took, up, took off to Duluth. And we were literally, you know, pulling into town off the freeway. And I got my phone showing the map of where I'm supposed to navigate because I'm leading and it's on the dash, and Grant calls right when I'm starting to pull off the freeway, which is a little bit irritating because I want to look at the map, not at my son calling me, and I don't want to talk to him right now because I can't, I'm not a multitasker at all. So I ignore the phone call. No kidding, 15 seconds later, he calls again. As it, I don't think he got the message from the first one, I guess, but I pushed the little red button a little bit harder to get it to go to voicemail, you know? Now I got the map up, and I'm kind of working. Fifteen seconds later, my, he calls my wife. And I could see who it was right away. And my wife answers the phone, and she says a couple of words to him. But all of a sudden, I can just tell that something's wrong. Because I know when I've done something wrong, my wife's voice changes. There's just like a tone about it. Well, she was doing that to my son, which I was grateful it wasn't me. But still, it was happening, right? And here's basically how the conversation went. She said, where are you? What happened? Hand the phone to the police officer. So this conversation ensues, and I kind of figured out after a couple of minutes what had happened. She hangs up the phone. My son, with a permit, kids, with a permit, took my brand-new Ford F-150, and his two friends up to a restaurant up the street, and on the way back, totaled it. Totaled the truck. Totaled it. Hit an electrical pole and hit it so hard that it removed it from the base, and actually the truck was wrapped around the pole holding it up. Okay. So we come to a stop in Duluth, and we're in shock. We decide to make the trip back home, which is a couple hours back home. So grateful that we had two hours to kind of calm down from this moment, right? Two hours on the way back home. We leave our kids with them, by the way, and make this trip home. And me and my wife are conversing in the car trying to figure out, what do we do about this situation? Because I want you to know, my son is an uninsured motorist. I mean, he just got his permit. So I call my insurance guy, who happens to be a friend of mine, also a Christian. I picked up the phone. I called him 15 minutes back into the trip back home, I said, hey, Jeremy, sorry to bother you on a Saturday. How are you doing? Small talk for a second. I said, Jeremy, I got a hypothetical situation for you. Because <laughs> I actually couldn't bring myself to tell him. So I said, Jeremy, hypothetical situation. I said, what if you have a kid in your home who only just got their permit, and they take a car out, and they wreck and total it? What should you do, like hypothetically? And he giggles. And then he says, well, I can tell you this, the last thing you should do is turn that into your insurance because there's no way that your insurance will ever pay a dime on that. They're uninsured. It's just not going to work. So no kidding, I said, thank you, Jeremy. Have a great Saturday. We'll talk to you later. Hung up the phone. That was it. That's how long the conversation took. I turned to my wife and I said, this ain't good. This ain't good. It ain't good because we've only made two payments on a $55,000 truck. Two payments on a $55,000 truck. And he struck an electrical pole, actually two of them, which cost $30,000, $30,000. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to have to come up with how much money that I don't have. And all the way home, my heart began to sink as I was trying to figure out how to navigate the situation. Seriously, on the way home, I couldn't see any way out of the situation. There was like no way out of the situation because I didn't have $85,000 sitting around in a bank account to pay for something I'd never see. I didn't. So we come close to home, literally a block from home, there's my beautiful white truck wrapped around this pole. I mean, it is so, it is so destroyed 
the axle didn't even move. Like, I mean, I was like 25 miles an hour, destroyed this truck. Pull into the garage, and as soon as we open the garage, my son is standing there, and I can see he's devastated. His, his face is swollen. He's been crying so hard. No kidding, we walk into the house, we go upstairs, we sit down at the kitchen table, he sits down in a chair, I sit down in a chair, my wife sits down in a chair, and then my wife does this thing where she crosses her arms, and she says, Grant, listen up, your dad has something he wants to say to you. <laughs> and I look at her like, are you serious? I got some, okay. So I said four things to my son, four things at the table, very calmly, very clearly, I made him unpeel his eyes and look at me, and I said, Grant, first thing you need to know is this. It's the law of first choice. The law of first choice is this, is that when you make that first choice, you get to make all the subsequent choices that go with it. You get to make the second choice, and the third choice, and the fourth choice, and the fifth choice, sometimes the sixth choice. Some choices have ten choices. You don't think about all those other nine choices. You just think about the first one, unfortunately. But sometimes you get to make all of them. So you stole my truck. So you got ticketed. So you're not going to be able to get your driver's license until you're 18. You're going to make my insurance go up. You put, us, you put our family in a financially devastating situation. There's only a couple choices you didn't make. You didn't kill yourself or one of the boys in the car. And you didn't kill anybody else. I am so glad you didn't make those choices. Do you understand the law of first choice? And he mumbles out, yes. I said, peel open your eyes again and look at me. I need you to hear the second one. The second thing is this. You need to know that sometimes when you sin, other people suffer, and that's not fair. Actually, it is fair, because everybody sins. But I said to him, you sinned, therefore we're suffering, and that ain't fair to us. Because now your sin has caused suffering not only for you, not only for your license, not only for your relationships, not only uh, for our insurance, but you put us in a financially devastating situation, and that ain't fair for any of us. Third thing is this. I actually need you to know this. I don't care about that truck. I actually don't care about it at all. I, I could care less about it. I'm just glad you're alive, but I said, number four, you need to do me a favor. You need to go down to your room and pray about this situation because I don't know what to do. I am in the same situation as you. I am perplexed by what to do in this moment. So he gets up from the table, goes down to his room, and he starts praying. I wasn't down there. I didn't listen. But me and my wife were sitting in the living room upstairs next to each other on a couch looking at a blank television in the dark. Because we're in one of those moments that were so emotionally devastating that we didn't actually know what to do. We didn't know what to say. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know the next step. And all of a sudden, about 15 minutes later, the power grid goes down in the city because of the pole that my son hit. Literally, you can hear the sound of the power just rolling back and down. And it got seriously quiet and dark outside. And all of a sudden you hear families coming out of their houses wondering, what's going on? You can hear them because it's so quiet. You can hear parents going, what's going on? You hear kids going, what just happened? People are like freaking out outside, but from our basement I heard this. It was a noise. It went like this. Oh! Because Grant understood what he had done. And we giggled just for a moment. Well, Grant did go down to his room and he prayed. He prayed for multiple days about the situation. But what I'm not telling you in the story is this, is that one year almost to the day, I totaled my previous Ford F-150. Totaled it. I was traveling from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, to Minneapolis, close to Christmas, and I was with the truck, in, in, with, with my daughter in the truck, and we were making our way back to the Twin Cities, and all of a sudden we hit a patch of ice. Just it, out of nowhere, there was a patch of ice. There was no ice on the road except right here in this spot, and the back end tail spun. Going 75, we T-boned a guardrail. We hit that guardrail so hard, 
it launched our rear axle about somewhere about 50 yards into a farmer's field. And then the truck rolled three times down a hill. First it flew about 30 yards, rolled three times down a hill. Everything was ejected from the truck. In fact, we hit so hard, the tied shoes on both of our feet came off. That's how hard we hit. And we lived. Except my daughter, one small thing happened. My daughter got a piece of glass in her ankle from the windshield. Not sure how that got there, but it got there. Police come out to the scene. An ambulance comes out to the scene. Everybody's shocked that we're alive. Shocked. Because they looked at the truck and they looked at us. We were walking and fine. The ambulance, the guys in the ambulance, the emergency medical technicians, took out a small piece of glass from my daughter's ankle. Tiny. Cost us $2,000. I was happy for him to take it out, by the way. What I wasn't happy about was my insurance paid for everything except for that little piece of glass. They refused to pay for the ambulance bill. In fact, six months after the second accident, so keep in mind, six months after the second truck incident, I'm now sitting in arbitration with my insurance company because they refused to pay for that $2,000 bill. As I'm sitting there in this arbitration, I got my lawyer, they got theirs, I feel like we're losing. I'm literally, they're eating our lunch. They're destroying us in this arbitration. When I look down at my phone, I'm getting a call from my insurance company, which was quite irritating, by the way. I ignore it. Send it to voicemail, like I did Grant. I get out of arbitration all beat up. I check my voicemail, and here's what the voicemail says. Mr. Miller, we are going to treat your son, Grant, as an insured motorist. We're going to pay the bill. For the second accident. Crazy, right? I didn't believe it until they actually paid for all of it. And I got a new truck out of the deal. Crazy, but it did happen. That was just one miracle. The second miracle was this. No kidding, the police officer absolved my son's ticket. It went away as if it never happened. Tore the thing up. Never went to court. Third miracle, when he was 16, just a month later, he got his driver's license. Why I allowed that, I don't know. But he got his driver's license. Fourth miracle, our insurance from that moment over the next four years went down every year. Went down. It went down every year. Fifth miracle, I won the arbitration. Sixth miracle, my son comes upstairs seven months after the incident as he's filling out his college applications. He's telling a story, and the story is about how I handled that moment at the table. He said, Dad, you did everything that a normal dad, you did everything the opposite of what a normal dad would do. You didn't shame me, you didn't tell me I was going to pay every dime, you didn't give me a face banking, you didn't hate me forever. In fact, you have never shamed me about that incident. I saw you trust in God. Therefore, I felt like I saw God through you because we were trusting in God together. Do you see that there? And I think sometimes people, parents, kids, grandparents, we don't see miracles from God because we don't do what God asks us to do here. We don't find our identity and priority in God. We find it in our own strength, by our own means, doing what we want in moments that God is trying to teach us to let go. And then along the way, use those to teach so that they will follow us as we follow God. My suggestion is this, is that if you want to see God do God-sized things in your life, you need you need to let God work through you as you are asking the people around you to do the same. So my sense of abandonment in that moment in trusting God, honestly, was a great moment. But it was only one moment that I've done great things and watched God do great things through me. I'm not always that good of a parent. I'm always, not always that perfect. But it was definitely a divine moment where God used me to trust in him that I might turn it into a teachable moment so my son might trust in him as well. Do you see how it works? It's quite astounding, and it's a miracle. 
And therefore, God produces miracles out of it. But the miracle is this. It's a relationship with our Father. You know, there are three times in the New Testament that God speaks audibly. Just three. Only three. Only three times in all of the New Testament where God speaks audibly. Two of those times, he says almost the identical thing. And it sounds like this. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The other time it says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Why do you think God says that to Jesus? Do you think he says it because Jesus needs to hear it? Or do you think he says it because we need to hear it too? I actually think it's both. Because guess what? God has nothing but first-generation children, direct recipients of his inheritance, sons and daughters who are first-generation recipients of his inheritance. And if you're sitting in the room and you're a believer, that is you. That is all of God's goodness by grace that he bestows upon you because he chooses to do it because he's generous and he wants to do it. But you know what that requires us to do is to be a good child his, to listen to his voice, to find our identity and priority in him, and then along the way, teach others to do the same. And that's our call today, so I call you back to that. If you have strayed from it, you need to hear it again. Let's pray together. Father God, you are a father. We call you by that name because you are. You're the very best father in a world of failed fathers. We are but a dim shadow. I, as a father, am but a dim shadow, a small, tiny, insignificant reflection of who you are. Yet, at the same time, through me and through each one of us, we are reflections of that beauty. And God, you call us children, a child, a son and daughter of the King. And today we cling to that by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.